Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning, good morning to you, you, good morning, good morning to you, and many more. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host today, Shante Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. Listen, it is good to be back. We kicked off yesterday on our uh, Black Table Talk page on Facebook, so if you did not watch that episode, head over to Facebook today and catch uh, we were talking all things black politics and black issues and concerns that are happening in real time. So today we are hopping back in. It is Wednesday. And if you've been following us for any length of time, you know that Wednesdays we focus on relationships. And we've been focusing on our relationship with ourself this season. So this is season 12. This is part two of season 12 and this is episode 52 all right so again if you've been with us any length of time today is wednesday relationship wednesday tomorrow will be theology thursday thinking thursday where we dive into all things spiritual fridays will is usually our health and finance and wellness segments that we'll be doing. But I did want to introduce a couple of things today um, that you may see me using or you may see me posting or you may see me doing a reel on some of these things because they have been very helpful. So for the month of July, I took time off to focus on myself, focus on my mental health, focus on my mental wellness. Um, I took some time off to celebrate me and my husband, as we uh, celebrated 23 years of holy matrimony uh, and our 24th honeymoon, as I like to say, and just got a chance to really just kind of rest and relax from the culture of being online all the time. I really did kind of step back um, in some ways I hadn't before. I was still posting things here and there. Um, on our Black Table Talk page, but um, I really tried to just hone in on, you know, things that were specific to what I needed to focus on and everything else. I just kind of let people do what they do. Um, but as usual, and as always, I, I it's a running joke with me that every time I sign off or I take a break or I go offline, all, it seems like all heck law, breaks out in the world. So there has been lots of things happening in the world. I've been paying attention, but I really haven't been in conversation about those things. 
One thing I know about the world is that it will give you five to 15 minutes of their attention and then they'll move on to the next uh, hot topic or the next big thing. So I want to dive back into the book that we are closing out reading. Uh, we, I believe, are in its last chapter. And it's the book entitled, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. Now, one thing that I have been noticing, and I've been noticing this past month, a whole lot more people really getting in and digging in and diving into the conversation on trauma and healing. Trauma and healing. And the fact that we have lots of people in Generation X um, and, and further back that really need to deal with their trauma, that really need to deal with generational trauma, and that really need to lean into getting healing. I've seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of parents diving into uh, what they call assertive parenting or authoritative parenting or conscious parenting and saying, hey, I need to do some things different because I'm dealing with my own trauma and I don't want that trauma to begin to leak over and spill over into how I am raising my children or my child. Now, I don't have natural born children, but I do have lots of godchildren and I do have lots of young people who have decided to make me their adoptive mother. <laughs> and notice I said, make me their adoptive mother. Um, I, I much prefer a child look at me and say, hey, this is somebody that I want to take me under their wing, or this is somebody that I see has, you know, motherly characteristics and care and intention about me. And I want to gravitate toward that. I find that to be an honor. Anytime a child says or looks at you as an adult and sees you as somebody that they can admire that they can learn from, that they can glean from, I would count that as an honor. So this is an important conversation that is being had, and I'm really glad it's being had. Now, are there still some people out here who are like, oh, you know, my, my child better listen to me. Um, you know, my child better give me respect I haven't earned. Yes, there are plenty of those people out there. But I really do feel like we are coming to a place, we are coming to a mindset. And um, good morning to those of you coming in, uh, Pastor Ben and Prophet Jonathan. There are, you know, people who have that mindset, but I think there's a whole lot more of people coming into the realization that, number one, children are human. They're not your pets. I don't care how old they are. Whether they're three months old, three years old, 13 years old, or 30 years old, they are their own human being. They have their own set of characteristics aside and apart from yours. They may not grow up to be like you. They may not grow up to have the same interests as you. They may not even grow up to want to do um, the things that they see you doing professionally, hobby-wise, whatever it is. And so I really do appreciate the fact that a lot more parents are recognizing that, hey, my child is an individual. My child is a, is a full human being that is growing into themselves. 
And I'm really here to facilitate that process of them growing into their themselves. I'm not here to make them a carbon copy of me. And when I see parents doing that, I just pray. Because at some point, they're going to hit the brick wall of that child called individuality. And when that child does not want to look like them, talk like them, speak like them, wear matching clothes like them, hello mothers and daughters. When their child does not want to do that, I hope that they will be ready to release that child into their individuality. Because if they're not, they're going to have some problems. They're going to have some problems. And family counseling definitely might be in order for that. So every day, professionally, I get to teach children. I get to teach adults. I get to counsel children. I get to, and when I say counsel, not therapy counsel, but counsel in terms of academics. Um, I get to advocate for children. I get to advocate for parents. I get to advocate for parents and children in school settings. So that's what I do on a professional basis. So I'm not telling you this from something I'm imagining in my head. <laughs> I'm telling you this from real life experiences of parents who are running into brick walls of parents who are realizing I've got to relinquish, you know, this, this helicoptering that I've been doing over this child and I've got to let this child grow in into themselves. I've got to trust that what I've taught my child about life, it's going to stick. I've got to trust that I have spoken into their life in a way that is positive. I've got to trust that I have equipped them with the necessary tools that will help them to be successful in the world. And you'd be surprised how many parents get to the 17th year of their child's life or the 18th year of their child's life and they start panicking. And they start feeling like, oh my God, they're leaving my house. I haven't done enough. I haven't said enough. I don't feel like I've given them enough skills. And in that panic, they go into this clamping down or this locking down on the child. Which of course is not going to work. As the child is looking at the door called freedom into adulthood. And so... These are the, th the kinds of things that you have to start thinking about as a parent. Now, some people start thinking about this the moment that the baby pops out and uh, is, is, in, is put in the crib and they just look down at their child and they're like, oh my gosh, I've got 18 years to put into them and to instill into them the things that they need to be successful in this world. And then some parents, they wing it. And then they get to year 17 and realize, oh my God, <laughs> I've been winging it. I've been just kind of moseying along and thinking that by just by osmosis that my child is going to learn some things that they need to learn. And I realize, hmm, I've left quite a bit off. So now I've got a year, I've got two years to kind of pour into them things I should have, you know, maybe been pouring into them once they hit their adolescent years, their teenage years, their uh, puberty years. 
So I try not to judge every parent by what I've seen with one or two parents, but I will say this. I think it's a good thing that more parents are waking up to the fact that their child is a whole child, not a half child, not their property, um, not someone to quote unquote boss around, not someone to make into your um, slave to just do things for you. Um, They're a whole human being, they're a whole person and they are intaking and they are taking in all of the different things that they're learning from you. They're learning whether or not they're gonna care for themselves or whether they're gonna be just dependent on you to do everything for them. They're learning whether or not they can use their voice or if it's safe to use their voice around you or if they have to hide their feelings because you can't accept the truth coming out of a child because you don't see them as a whole person. So they're learning that. They're learning from your example of what to do and what not to do. They're learning whether or not they have a voice or not. They're learning whether or not abuse equals love or love equals kindness and respect and compassion and empathy and listening and understanding. They're learning that from you. So more than their peers, more than people like me who who may come in as an educator or as a child advocate, more than from us, the direct source of their understanding is coming through you as the parent and as the guardian. So that's something that I am glad that more people are waking up to. They're waking up to their responsibility as parents, as guardians, and realizing that children are whole beings. As I like to say, they're little people and little people grow into big people. Um, And little people begin to hold memories at the age of two. So if you have a two-year-old, please understand that though they may not have the language to communicate back with you, they understand and fully comprehend what is going on around them. They're intaking it. Now, I learned that in a child development class, but I think some people still don't understand that about their own children. If they're two years old or older, they might not be able to speak to you in plain English. They might still be saying, (laughs) but they understand you. Now, do they understand you like a 13 year old would understand you? Most likely not, but they do understand. They do understand, they do comprehend. So, you know, Think about that the next time you are with children, young children. Think about your attitude. Think about your behavior. Think about what you're saying in their space. I talked about one time I I went down to um, the hood in South Florida. This was in Homestead at the time. And 
in this particular um, space that we would call the people would call the projects, but basically low income housing. And I talked about how almost every child in that space was using profane words. They didn't know what the words meant. These were children in diapers, but their language was profane. And I was shocked. I was like, these, these little babies in diapers around here are cursing like grown men and women. And they were in diapers. Where do we think that came from? It came from the saturation of the language that they were around. So your children are picking up on whatever you're saying, whatever you're doing. Don't think, oh, because, you know, they're young. They don't understand. They don't process. They don't know what's going on. They know what's going on. They don't have the language for it. They don't have the language for it yet, but they do know what's going on. So let me dive into chapter 10, what we need now. And this is Oprah giving her own story synopsis at the beginning. We'll probably read just a few minutes. And then I will open it up for some conversation because I've got a lecture to do today. And so I have to leave off a little bit early. Years ago, I played the character of Seath or Seth in the film version of Toni Morrison's searing novel, Beloved. Seth was a former slave haunted by the horrific death of her daughter, Beloved. She was a former slave haunted by the horrific death of her daughter, Beloved. In the film, Beloved returns to Seth, reincarnated as a disabled child. Seth takes her into her home. For the rest of her life, Seth does penance to Beloved as their relationship becomes more and more debilitating and intertwined. One day we were shooting a scene where Seth was supposed to tuck Beloved into bed. The only instruction I got from the director, Jonathan Dem, was, okay, tuck her in. And so I walked to each corner of the bed and folded the blanket down perfectly and tucked it under the mattress. Cut, Jonathan yelled from behind the camera. Oprah, you're not tucking her in. And so I repeated the process more purposefully, tucking each corner of the blanket under the mattress. Cut, Jonathan walked over to me. What are you doing? I'm tucking her in. I could feel a mix of fear and embarrassment rising inside me, but I didn't know why. He said, you're making the bed, not tucking in your daughter for bed. In that moment, something clicked deeply. I stared at Jonathan. I don't know what tucking in means, I said quietly. I don't know how to do that. Finally, we both understood what was happening. Jonathan gently taught me how to circle my daughter with loving tucks of the blanket. As we moved around the bed together, I was hit by a flood of grief. I don't recall ever being tucked in. I never felt anyone place a blanket on me with that kind of loving intention. That must be what a mother's love is. Years later, I was in the kitchen with my friend Urania, and her young daughter, Kylie. Urania asked Kylie if she'd like something to eat. 
Yes, please, Kylie said. Urania went to the refrigerator and took out some strawberries. She washed them, took a knife, and began slicing. I could see she'd done this many times before. As the knife moved around a berry, the shape of a delicate rose began to emerge. A strawberry rose, I marveled. Urania carefully placed the beautiful berries on a plate and handed them to her daughter. Watching, my eyes filled with tears. The tenderness with which she did it seared my soul. Again, I said to myself, that must be what a mother's love is. My mother and I had a complicated relationship. As I mentioned earlier, I spent my early childhood, my first six years, living with my grandmother. I have no memory of my mother during that period. When my grandmother became sick, I was suddenly moved to Milwaukee to live with my mother. This was not a joyful maternal child reunion. I could feel I was not welcome. The night I arrived in Milwaukee, the woman my mother was boarding with, Miss Miller, took one look at me and said, she'll have to sleep on the porch. Miss Miller was light-skinned. She could almost pass for white, and she was not going to have this nappy-headed dark child, as she said, stay in her house. My mother said, all right. I had never slept anywhere but in my grandmother's bed. On the enclosed porch, I could hear noise from the street. As I watched my mother close the house door to go to bed where I thought I would sleep, I was consumed with a terrified sense of loneliness that brought me to tears. I imagined a robber snatching me from the porch or someone breaking through the windows and choking me. That first night, I got on my knees and prayed to God to send angels to protect me. When I woke in the morning, the terror was gone, but the sense of being unsafe while sleeping would remain for much of my life. A knowing had filled my soul. At six years old, I felt I was alone and no one but God was going to watch out for me. My pain and the resolve that followed it became a cycle that would repeat itself many times. I believe it is, in a profound way, the very through line of my life. The struggles I endured as a child are what allowed me to recognize and care about the pain in others. The validation I long for as a child is what I see other people longing for just as intently. Thousands of people had the courage to share their stories with me because their story was my story. Their pain was my pain because all pain is the same. There are so many beautiful stories of people who say they were able to break the cycle of abuse or trauma in their family. Is it possible to completely prevent passing on the negative or toxic effects of such experiences? Dr. Perry. It's important to clarify that most people who are abused don't go on to abuse other people in the same way. On the other hand, it is becoming clear that it's the very rare person who has been abused who doesn't have some form of adaptation that impacts how they deal with other people. It doesn't have to be a pathology, but it can influence the ways in which you form and maintain relationships. This goes back to our earlier talk about why some people seem to seek out abusive relationships. Our brain, our mind pulls us toward familiar patterns, even when those patterns are negative. This is what people in the church would call familiar spirits, but it's really your brain working to pull you into a familiar pattern or a familiar way of being. 
People end up repeating previous maladaptive patterns and often don't recognize it. A lot of times the people around us will see it more clearly than we do. And sometimes when people see a clear pattern in you and they're telling you what that clear pattern is and you don't listen or you shun them telling you what the clear pattern is or you withdraw from hearing the truth about the clear pattern, then yeah, you're going to go around the mulberry bush another another time. Oprah says, yes, and so often real change can't happen until you do see it for yourself. I knew very early on in my childhood that if I was going to make it, I was going to have to do it on my own. There was no scaffolding, as you call it, built for me. But over the years, there were some very special teachers who took time to nurture the potential they recognized in me. And that's what you are saying. It really can be just a handful of people seeing you through a new lens and taking time to help you. My teachers didn't have a trauma-informed education. Now that some people have, and now that your groundbreaking work is out in the world making ripple effects, are you hopeful that more people can heal? I'm more hopeful than I was 20 years ago. I've spent most of my career trying to help better understand and help children, youth, and adults after trauma. For us, a major advancement came when we could finally translate some of the complex neuroscience into useful models for doing clinical work. The neurosequential model allows us to create a version of how the individual's brain appears to be organized as it, it is basically like an inspection of a house. By asking about the history of the house's construction or what happened to you, we are able to home in on the most likely problems. What would predictably happen if you didn't let the cement of the foundation set or didn't properly route the plumbing up to the second floor? Once we know the source of the problem, we can better understand how to fix it. In a sequence that replicates the original construction of the house or the brain, we put in place a rebuilding and renovation plan. With the problem areas in mind, we can provide experiences, both educational and therapeutic, that jumpstart and reorganize the systems that were impacted by neglect, adversity, and trauma. We have a better idea about how to select the sequence and sequence therapeutic experiences, a better grasp of what we can do to help and when. We have a lot more to learn, but we're pretty optimistic. Hundreds of thousands of children, youth, and adults from over 26 countries have benefited from clinical and educational services that use this neurodevelopmental trauma-aware lens. Think back to Mike Roseman when we finally started the bottom-up approach that helped regulate his trauma-sensitized nervings. That was a beta version of our model. Addressing the brain's problems in the proper sequence and focusing on the lower networks before moving on to issues in the higher regions of the brain. Regulate the brain, relate, and then reason, as you say. Let me give you one additional, even more detailed example of how this works. About 20 years ago, we were asked to see Susan, a seven-year-old girl who'd been adopted at age two. Her behaviors were overwhelming her parents, teachers, and therapists. At age two, when she was adopted, Susan was nonverbal, had sleeping problems, prolonged temper tantrums, staring spells, and self-mutilation behaviors, like scratching her face and picking at her skin until it bled. 
As she got older, physical and occupational therapists, tutors, live-in mental health specialists, in-school aides, developmental pediatricians, psychologists, and psychiatrists were involved in her care. She'd been through five years of shifting labels and treatments with minimal progress. Early in her life, she had found adversity and minimal relational connection. The foundation of her house was very likely weak and fragile. She was born to a single mother who struggled with mental health problems. The mother had been removed from her own parents when she was four and spent her entire childhood and youth in a series of foster homes. At 18, she aged out of the system and was on her own. She immediately became pregnant but was unable to care for Susan. The child welfare system removed Susan at four months of age and ultimately terminated parental rights. Susan became a ward of the state. This form of transgenerational trauma is not uncommon with so many of the children in our child protective systems. When Susan was removed from her mother, she entered shelter care for two months. Then she was in a succession of three foster homes before she was finally adopted. One can only imagine her worldview about safety and trustworthiness of adults. The process of building her house was continually interrupted. The wiring, plumbing, and framing were all impacted by a two-year span of unpredictable, uncontrollable, and extreme activation of her stress response systems. It was no surprise that she had classic symptoms of sensitized dissociative system. Her self-mutilation, as we talked about before, was an attempt to regulate herself. In the face of unavoidable pain and distress, she disassociated, hence her staring spells. And the arousal component of her stress response, her temper tantrums were the toddler's equivalent of the fight or flight response. This was a terrified, confused, and undeveloped child. Now, part of the problem was that the educational and mental health systems, not to mention her parents, were viewing her as simply a seven-year-old child. But while she was chronologically seven, she was not developmentally seven. She had the social skills of an infant, the regulatory skills of a two-year-old, the cognitive skills of a three-year-old. Parents, teachers, and therapists kept trying to reason with her. They explained the rules and tried to explore why she was doing all these quote-unquote naughty things. They were doing the best they could. They did not understand state-dependent functioning or the developmental challenges that were predictable considering her history. Our neurosequential model allowed us to create a blueprint for therapeutics that started at her foundation, the bottom parts of her brain. She had sensory integration issues. She could not stand to be touched. When more than one person was talking in a room, she became overwhelmed. She could not tolerate certain fabrics on her skin. She was always burying herself beneath piles of pillows and blankets and more. So we started by creating a set of pattern somas to sensory experiences for her. Weighted blankets, gradually introduced therapeutic massage, enriched her sensory diet, giving her the ability to touch and put her hands on things, provided by a trauma-aware occupational therapist. We didn't focus on her problems with her peers, her inability to pay attention in class, her depressive symptoms, her explosive outbursts, or even her speech problems. We were going in sequence. We started with the lower systems of her brain, knowing we would get to the other problems later in the treatment process. 
A key part of this approach is to help parents, help teachers, and clinicians know the stage and watch the state of the person. Meaning, we want to help them learn what the child's actual developmental capabilities are, what actual stage of development they are in, as opposed to their chronological age. And we want to help them become aware of the child's state dependence. We encourage them to ask themselves, is this child in a state where they can effectively hear what I'm trying to say or teach? I run into this a lot and I'm going to stop here. We will come back to Susan's what happens in the process of her approach. But I continually and consistently see this with parents. Your child's age and their developmental age may not be the same. So you might be trying to get your child to do or hear what it is you're saying and developmentally they're not there yet. Their understanding is not there yet. Their processing level is not there yet. And so you have to be, the word we often tell adults, you have to be patient. Patient with your child. All right. I am going to stop right there. I've got about 10 minutes um, where we can conversate. I will hold off on what I was going to show you all. I probably do it on Friday. I will have more time then. Um, remember, Friday will be on at 12, 12.05 as opposed to 11. Um, but if you want to come on and join me in conversation today, please click on the add button that has the two people and I will bring you on. But today's conversation has really been about trauma. It's been about resilience. And it's been about how do we process that as adults? How do we process that as caregivers, as parents, as guardians, as advocates? How do we process that for ourselves? And how are we processing that with the children that are in our lives? If you've been listening by Anchor, Spotify, Google Play, any other podcast mechanism, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care.